The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to We've Got Mail. This is the podcast where you control the conversation right here on the Critically Acclaimed Network. My name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold, or as my friends like to call me, BLAM! Uh, <laughs> I too am a critic. Uh, for the purposes of this uh, this particular podcast, you can call me Rockmeister McCool. That is in the letters episode and the letters episodes only. Yeah. Hey, Whitney. Yeah. Knock, knock. Who's there? It's Blam. <laughs> it's Blam who? Blam in your face! <laughs> the friends who stick together... Blam! Together. Uh, this isn't reference. <laughs> if you're wondering what the hell we're going on about, which everyone is, except for one very ashamed writer in 2009, uh, whenever Disney tries to be real hip, it's just embarrassing. Yeah, uh, they like any, anything from Quack Pack on, oh. you know, it's just uh, it's just su- such such an embarrassing Especially thing. Especially when they try to retrofit their older, not cool characters to be cool. Yeah, and there's no funnier example of this than a show called Blam Up. Uh, and if you look, you can find it on YouTube. Look for look for Disney and Blam. Well, it, it was technically a, a subsection of a series of bumpers they did in between their shows yeah. called Just for Laughs. Yeah, but by, by show, I mean it was like 60 to 90 seconds long. And mm-hmm. the whole thing is they would take old, original Disney cartoons featuring Goofy or Donald Duck or Mickey Mouse, and they would have, like, running commentary on it, like you were watching some kind of, like, skateboard video. And there would be guys like, these guys have got to clean this clock tower. But, uh-oh, they didn't know that this spring is loose. And then when they get hit by the spring, he goes, BLAM! <laughs> it's like every episode is like 90 seconds of this guy just setting up opportunities to yell, BLAM! It, it, it's a parody. It sounds like a parody. Yeah, yeah. It's actually like, <laughs> it, I, 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 people were like talking about like, oh, this is the worst thing they ever did. I'm like, no, this is actually kind of... Kind of genius and meta, like the idea of this kind of like absurdist commentary on old Disney cartoons where all we're doing is waiting for the slapstick. And then once they do, we just think it's like way funnier than it actually is. And then we make it seem it's like it's really stupidly funny. This has nothing to do with the podcast that we're talking about, but it's all we've but been it's, talking it's, about. It's worth sharing. We've been, this is all we have been doing here at Casa de Bibiani and Casa de Seibel for like the last two or three days. It's just been yelling blam at one another. And it never stops being funny. Uh, but anyway, this is We've Got Mail. <laughs> this is the podcast where you write to us and we answer your emails. Uh, and we promise we won't always respond with... Blam! <laughs> we won't say blam each time. We promise we won't say blam each time. Hmm. Important word choice. Uh, no, you write no, no, us. It's, it's one of those things you have to stop yourself from doing it all know, the time. I know. It's like I, I have a sign. Here's your. Hey, kid. Here's your lunch. Blam! <laughs> like. 
No, no, no. Stop. Just stop yourself. Um, anyway, here's how here's how this podcast works. Uh, you write us emails. A lot of our, our listeners write us emails. We're very grateful for your emails. We love answering your emails, answering your questions, talking about topics you, you would like to hear a debate about, or talking about the history of film and television, or you just want to know more about us personally, or you want to recommend a movie to everybody, or uh, whatever. Anything at all. We're, we're pretty open books. You're right. The, uh, the email address is letters at critically acclaimed.net. Once again, that's letters at critically acclaimed.net. We don't have time to read all your emails, but we do try as hard as we can. And so uh, we've, we've dilly dallied a lot this week. So let's just jump right in. All right. And uh, Whitney, what's our first, uh, what's our, first uh, email? our first email comes from Kaylin. Hi, Kaylin. Hi, Kaylin. Um, hello, Bibbs and six. I'll explain it in the postscript. I am, I'm okay. the num- I am the number six. Who is number one? Uh, in your most recent episode of We've Got Mail, the topic of never-before-released and or obscure films was brought up. This immediately brought to my mind the TV miniseries Rose Red. Oh, yeah. Uh, my parents recorded all three parts on cassettes as they aired on TV, and we watched them together. Later, we bought the DVD, and I watched it many times. I even read the book The Diary of Ellen Rimbauer that was written after the fact, but was kind of a prequel. The, uh, it was a Stephen King joint, right, Rose Memory Red? Memory serves, yeah. yeah. Uh, they made a TV movie of, of that one, too. Rose Red led to my obsession with creating patterns out of dominoes and then knocking them over. Not to mention nice. sending a shiver down my spine every time a child sings, I'm a little teapot. Um, <clears throat> I don't have context for that. I don't know Rose I Red. actually don't think I saw this one, mm. but uh, it's you know it's a horror movie. They tend to sort of repurpose yeah. children's rhymes. It's not, it's not uncommon. Yeah. Many children's rhymes mm. have their roots in horror in the first place. There's a, a bloody-eyed found footage children. Uh, I would point out that I was 10 years old when I first when it first aired and probably uh, haven't watched it since I was maybe 13 or 14. Hmm. Uh, would it actually be good when viewed through my adult 2021 lens? Who is to say my mom still has the DVD that I could borrow, but out of curiosity, I tried to find myself a physical or digital copy. It turns out that's easier said than done. A few people have copies for sale on Amazon for no less than $67. Yeah. Uh, and it's not available to purchase or rent digitally anywhere. A used copy on eBay will run you for, for only 15 but many copies are going for $25 or more. What is happening? <laughs> it's just a silly TV movie. Why is it such a hot commodity? Uh, to get to my question, if an IP hits a point when the holder of the rights is no longer benefiting financially from that IP... Shouldn't it just be in the public domain? New physical copies obviously aren't being made of this movie, and to my knowledge, nobody is kicking down any doors to do a remake slash sequel slash reboot slash prequel to it. I'm sure Stephen King has long since forgotten he even wrote the screenplay. Why can't I watch this damn movie anywhere? Best regards, Kaylin Rose. Uh, P.S. I tried to mimic Big Bib's nickname by taking the first syllable of Whitney's surname and then adding an S at the end. Uh, this this pronounces the word seis. Spanish for six. Ah, okay. I see, I see right. it. I see it. Henceforth, you shall be six in my eyes. I'll be six. You are number six. I am, I am Whitney Seis. Seibold. Yeah. Um, well, that's, thank you for your uh, email. And yeah, that's actually a, uh, something we don't talk about enough either. We were talking about, I think it was on the last week's episode mm. of We've Got Mail, movies that had never been formally released on home video or at least on DVD and are... As a result, kind of hard to find. Often this is because of rights issues. Sometimes it's because the rights are readily available, but the people who own it don't think there's any value in it, so they haven't mm. bothered. Um, but there's another side to that, and that is movies that have been released, but have since gone out of print. So the discs may be available, but because they're scarce, um, often because if the movie fell out of print, there's a decent chance there wasn't a huge demand, so there aren't a lot available. 
uh, and the people who are interested are especially interested and might be willing to shell out more money. Um, and so, yeah, sometimes discs run out of print, which is why mm-hmm. sometimes you can still find a VHS of an out of print movie still selling for two hundred dollars. Yeah, just because it's the only way to get the movie. <clears throat> that was uh, that was true of. I really wanted to see the. Uh, I'm a big fan of Tiny Toon Adventures. Yeah. Uh, it was something that was very dear to me when I was 12, and I I find it still holds up. Uh, it doesn't, but I no, think it does. Uh, Occasionally. It's, bit, it's, bits bits yeah. and pieces here and there. It, it's incredibly dated. It's like really of its time. But yeah. uh, Every single one, as much as, I think Babs is one of the great cartoon creations, period. Ba- ba- Babs and Buster Bunny both, but Babs especially. What I, what I found, though, rewatching some old Tiny Toons Adventures episodes mm. in the last couple of years was that as great a character as Babs was, mm. her shtick was doing impersonations, and almost all of her impersonations are really dated. Yeah, like they're just like, they're TV personalities. You, you wouldn't understand anymore. And... Yeah, so so her her shtick just doesn't land the way it used well, but, to, and uh, as a result, it's harder to get quite on board with her if you're new. But at the same time, if you watch something like Hollywood Steps Out, the old Warner Brothers cartoon short, where mm-hmm. there's just like all these caricatures of characters like Buster Keaton and the Marx Brothers and Clark Gable and Laurel and Hardy. You know which one they don't show very often anymore? Hollywood Steps Out. Yeah. yeah. It's still, I think it's fascinating. I, I still like think it's fascinating. Sort of I'm, not, I'm glad it's available. I'm mm-hmm. just saying I don't think it's the one that's like people are thinking of no. when they think of Bugs Bunny anymore. But uh, I bring it up because they did a Halloween special called Night Goolery. And yeah. uh, we've talked about it before. And Night Goolery was one of those things where it was only available on a VHS tape that you could buy through Amazon for like $600. And I know when it comes to like Amazon pricing, a lot of that is actually automated mm. based on sort of where sales are and like the scarcity of the item itself. I, know how that works. I, I, yeah, I, I don't think it's necessarily just what the seller elects. I think there's something and, about, uh, about like the algorithm that selects a price for, I you. have no idea how true yeah. that is. What I do know is that there is a, uh, and it has long been a major, you know, out of print market for these things. I've bought many, uh, out mm. of print movies, on eBay, sometimes on Amazon, and their uh, mm. used uh, DVD or hell, I've bought I bought used laser discs for quite a lot of money uh, for yeah, movies yeah. that still have been released on DVD in some cases. Um, that was one of the the great that was one of the reasons why laser discs were hanging on mm. for quite a few years. There was because there were a lot of movies that were released early days in laser disc that they never bothered putting on DVD mm. like they forgot about and then a lot of them eventually did but for mm. many many years it was the only way you can get like Green for Danger which is now on Criterion oh heck even Eraserhead was only yeah. on like a Japanese laser disc I, re- for I, longest, longest I might time. still have in like a closet somewhere a laser disc of uh, Scorsese's early short films which Ooh, I don't think nice. have ever been properly released on DVD um, so stuff like that mm. um so there is a market for this stuff, and that's the reason why it's so expensive is because it's scarce. We're not used to scarcity in home media, mm. especially in the streaming era, where it's available to all or it's not available at all. That's not scarcity. It's just it's a binary. It's on or off. It's either mm. there or it's not. Um, it sucks that stuff isn't available on streaming. There's not a good excuse for it. Someone has the rights to that. It's probably the uh, television sensation that aired Rose Red mm. or whatever its parent company is, Universal or so, Paramount yeah, the, or whatever. The, the, I, I get frustrated, like you do too, listener, about how um, things that are clearly really unpopular mm-hmm. and nobody's like sitting on them for any kind of strategic financial purpose mm-hmm. aren't just made super cheap 
or thrown out there or put in the public domain. Yeah. Well, I, what's weird about Rose Red was I looked this up when, when you were talking because I was like, oh, yeah, how popular was that? 18 million people watched that miniseries. So it, it was popular. Okay. It, there was a market for it. It's Stephen King. Mm-hmm. You put you slap Stephen King's name on anything, it's going to sell at least some copies. Yeah, like it's it's he, he's a he's a brand, and he's a brand that people rely on. They they know that if Stephen King's name is on that, they're at least going to be interested. It's weird that this one isn't available. Mm-hmm. It's not the weirdest thing in the world, but it is weird. So you have every right to be baffled by this. It does make no sense. What I can say is the best thing that you can do is to keep sort of chiming in. Mm. Talk about it on social media. Say, hey, where's Rose Red? You know, like, we, you know, the Snyder Cut is the biggest example of this, where people just started shouting down the rooftops, hey, make a director's cut of this movie, and then they eventually did. But that's how we get a lot of stuff in this in this industry. Yeah, especially when it comes to saying, home video releases. Yeah. Uh, if, yeah, if... I know uh, you and I, uh, we don't do it so much anymore, but we used to like churn out all these think pieces all the time about mm. underrated films that hadn't been talked about or they're celebrating some kind of milestone anniversary. Yeah. It's the 20th anniversary of X film. and or Warlock. I think it did Warlock once. Yeah, there you, know? you go. Yeah, like we'll War- just... Warlock is a very good film that people don't talk, only horror fans tend to talk about a lot. Yeah. Um, and when those articles start to appear and those things get shared around and a lot of people start writing about them, that tends to... G- catch the attention of the, the home video marketers. Like, hey, do we own them? We yeah. do. Can we just well, a lot digitize of people, that, put that on streaming? Yeah, a lot of Let's people are, a lot of people are talking about this. Let's put out a DVD and you yeah. know, I, I, or or maybe smaller uh, companies who distribute movies from other studios like Shout Factory or mm-hmm. uh, uh, Arrow Video. They might say to themselves, yeah, they haven't put that out, which means they probably don't give a shit and we can get the rights pretty cheap. So let's put out a smaller number of these, make it make it look nice, mm-hmm. get a decent commentary track from critics like ourselves. Which we've done for the, we the, the Shout Factory. We did, we did two movies. We did uh, Brewster's Millions and Very Bad Things. Which are, uh, I believe, still currently on sale yeah. through the Shout Factory uh, sale right yeah, now. We, got, right we now. got no money from that. Hell, we didn't get paid for that. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, no, we, we, did it, we did it just because we wanted to. Always but, wanted uh, to do uh, it. Yeah, so that was cool. But my point is this. We're, you're not like, this isn't shilling. We're not... You're not giving us any money if you buy them, but I guess just in case you're curious, we we have done it before. But like that's how it works. They're mm. like, oh, there's not the studio isn't caring about this. We know that there's at least a small and dedicated market for this, so we'll put it out. So yeah, tell the world. Rose Red is exactly the kind of thing Sh- a Scream Factory would put out. Mm. Like exactly the kind <laughs> of thing, or or something like uh, Arrow mm. Video too. Like they would yeah, be yeah. like, oh, but here's yeah, uh... what the hell is that? But here's the irony. Once uh, Shout Factory or, uh, or Aero Video decides to put out like a really nice Blu-ray of one of these things, they're going to put a lot of extra features on it. They're going to make it look really, really nice. And you're going to end up spending a lot for it because these are uh, kind of Tiffany items. Uh, yeah, but there's a, you're not going to spend like the $200 you're spending no, on a Rose, right? No, you're not no. going to spend the $50 you're going to spend on the used DVD. Yeah, but you're going to spend like... Thirty dollars when it's on sale. The 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 three ninety nine the the idea of getting a three ninety nine used DVD out of a video store is gone, which is really a pity. Mm. Uh, you and I got to live through uh, a, a sad yet glorious time when a lot of the local video stores were closing, mm. which meant they were selling off their catalogs. How they used to do that anyway? We, they would just like yeah. flood, like oh, we we're gonna get like. We'd, the new release wall at your oh, local well, that, blockbuster, like blockbuster or yeah, yeah, we'd be like, oh, we're gonna get like, uh, oh, I'm thinking, thirty copies of Bounce with Gwyneth Paltrow. Yeah, like yeah. Bounce is coming out on home video. 
So we're bound to we're we're bound to to uh, rent a bunch of co- co- you know at least on the first opening weeks to rent a whole bunch of copies of Bound. So we're going to rent like we're going to buy like thirty copies of Bound, and now it's like well we only need like one or two copies of, of Bounce like after it's been out for a mm-hmm. while. So they just would sell them used, and they'd start off at like twelve dollars, and within a couple of months they'd be five. Yeah, and then within a few months after that they'd be two, four, four down to two. Yeah, and then or or it's like three for nine ninety nine or whatever. And did you notice at Blockbuster that as the price got lower, the sticker got larger? <laughs> yeah, because they had like to the, cover the, up the, the old stickers. The twelve ninety nine stickers were really little, but the three ninety nine stickers were huge. Please, and, take, please take our DVDs. And, and that was stubborn adhesive; you could not peel those suckers <laughs> off. That was hell. Um, but, um, but yeah, no, it's, that's not really, we, we don't really have that market anymore. Yeah. So but there's still a used market. You can still get a lot of DVDs mm. relatively cheap, especially if they were mass produced. Yeah. You, but, you can, yeah. you can get them through any kind of mail order yeah. service. But, uh, there's plenty on eBay. But I do want to say like, if, if this is something you're passionate about, like I would really love to own a nice copy of Rose Red, whether it's because you genuinely like it or just nostalgia reasons you want to see if it's good. Um, I think it's one to, to think about whether or not that's worth money to you. Now that doesn't mean it's worth infinite amounts of money. You can mm. bulk at like a $50 price tag and go, well, that's way too fucking much. No, thank you. But at the same time, as cool as it would be to just find it on streaming, if they did put it out in screen factory, Blu-ray for $30, that might be worth that money. And honestly, mm. like they, they work their butt off to make that home video release. And I think it's important to remember that as convenient as streaming is, and we pay we pay a certain amount a month, or mm. some streaming services are free with ads. Um, art has value, and the people who make that art deserve money for their really hard work. So if they do end up putting that out, if you do do the work, whether it's Rose Red or anything else, if you do do the work and you do campaign or you do say like, hey, please, whoever, home video gods, please put out whatever. And then they finally do. You should buy it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah for sure. But if you can, I mean, obviously, if you can't, you can't. But like, you know, you asked. <laughs> Least you could do is buy. It. Like, I hope every single person who begged for the Snyder Cut buys it on Blu-ray when it comes out on Blu-ray. Yeah, like, yeah. come on. <laughs> like, you, you, I mean, you've asked seventy million dollars to make that thing for you, <laughs> in addition to what they already spent. Buy the buy the damn Blu-ray, <laughs> right? Anyway, we should move uh, yeah. on. Here's, here's a letter. Uh, here's Thank you for your letter. letter. It's, a great, you for it's letter. a great point. Thank you. Here's our next letter. It is from Jellico. Oh, Captain Jellico from mm. uh, that two-part episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. Jellico um, captains are Jellico cute. Jellico yeah. captains are on, really uh, cute. On All Our Yesterdays, we'll is... eventually get to Captain Jellico, played by yeah. Ronnie Cox from Robocop. And, uh, I think Ronnie Cox is cute. You think he's kind of cute? Sure he is. He's a, he, he is the Jellico choice. Yeah. Uh, dear Bibbs and Whitney, hello from Australia. Oh, hello, Australia. Hi. Um, I was surprised to hear that back in the day, the original Mad Max was dubbed for American audiences because <laughs> it was believed that our accents were too thick to be understood. I forgot uh, about that. That's totally true. Yeah. I know our accent can be tricky. Dev Patel and Kate Winslet nail it. Uh, most other attempts are attempts are difficult to watch. Here's a quick tip when it's written Aussie, but pronounced Aussie. Uh, how are accents and slang received now in America? Uh, also, our film industry is small, but I was wondering how many Australian movies actually make it to America and how much how uh, are some uniquely Australian films received? For example, although it's a little dated, The Castle is, in my mind, a quintessential Australian film. Man's Home is a Castle. It's a line most Australians know and can relate to. I'm curious how the culture, the humor, and the slang translate. I look forward to your answers. Thank you, as always, for interesting content. Jellico. Uh... 
thanks to the popularity of a 1986 comedy film called Crocodile Dundee, mm. there was a brief period where Australian culture was everywhere in the United States. Yeah, it was very trendy for a little while. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and 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 to be mm. fair, there was ancillaries like The Road Warrior had already come out. That yeah. was a big hit over here. Hmm. Um, I th- but Crocodile Dundee was the thing that really no. kind of clinched it. Crocodile and, Dundee was a monster. Yeah, it was hugely popular, yeah. and uh, and so yeah, we uh, to this day you can still get. I think you can still get Dunkaroos. Oh yeah, I which those. are uh, it's, these little these little like wafer cookies, yeah. and they would have like a, a, a little, little a little reservoir full of just chocolate. really revolting frosting, or like Nutella, and, or and something, you and yeah. you d- dump your mediocre cookie in the mediocre frosting, yeah. and you'd eat it. But you're you know when you're it, eight, it, this is the bee's knees. It's like when you get those little uh, packets of crackers, and there's like a little reservoir of cheese. It was yeah. like that, but it was a, it was cookie a little and chocolate, little, yeah. little plastic plank that you spread on. Uh, yeah, yeah these these were like children children's snacks, and that was one of the results of. Just this invasion of Australian culture into the American vernacular. Um, As for the films that come over here, uh, I know thanks to a documentary called Not Quite Hollywood Mm. about sort of the thriving Australian exploitation movie scene and how a lot of uh, really just unbelievably awesome movies were made in Australia during this really uh, compacted time, mostly in the 1980s. Yeah, your, your uh, so, BMX bandits, your Razorbacks. Yeah, ro- your... Ro- yeah Razorback road games, uh, and anything by uh, uh, Brian Trenchard Smith. Mm. Oh, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, if you were sort of a, a cult film aficionado, you saw those. But occasionally, you like had The Howling 3. If you're a werewolf fan, you'd see The Howling 3. Yeah. And Mad Max was this big crossover hit that... Uh, was Australian, but I know that a lot of Americans claimed it. Yeah, it's uh, weird, I, I remember a couple of my friends. Because Mel Gibson's like technically American, even he, though he, he was, was raised in Australia. He was born in the United States, but he was raised in yeah. Australia. So there was this um, whole thing where it's just like you've never seen Mad Max until you've seen it in the original American, like that kind of yeah, that yeah, kind yeah. of weird ownership. Mm-hmm. And the, yes, that movie was dubbed mm-hmm. uh, again for American audiences. In fact, that happens more often than you'd think. I remember uh, there was um, there was a redub, I think, of a movie called Mean Machine. Which was this kind of British remake of The Longest Yard starring Vinnie Jones and Jason Statham as this like serial killer they brought in to be their soccer goalie. So because all the guards would be scared to to, to make a goal. Um, it's fine. Oh. It's it's a perfectly decent movie, but the accents were so thick there was like an American version of the audio track. Oh wow. That they were and I remember I saw the, the original audio track and I'm like yeah, their accents are thick, but this is fine. I can tell what the fuck they're saying. Yeah, I, uh, what the hell? Or maybe was it? Maybe was that one dubbed, or was that one have that one might have just had subtitles in a theater? Either uh, way, it's ridiculous. <laughs> um, that said, I've I've seen a lot of Australian films in recent years, mostly horror movies. Mm. Uh, Jennifer Kent's two movies uh, were were well received. The Nightingale and the Babadook. The, night, the, the Babadook yeah. and the Nightingale. Yeah. Um, I think those are Jen- Jennifer Kent's only features so far. I think those are first two. I have to, yeah. I'd have to look Pretty that sure. up. Uh, but there was, uh, speaking of The Castle, The Castle was more of like a cult film, I think, in America. But yeah, yeah. it was very well liked. In fact, there is this whole American sense of the quote-unquote quirky Australian comedy. Uh, which well, Australian and and also English, like they kind of came came over to there was a the United of, States at around the same time. There was a, there was this big trend in the nineties of these like small town full of eccentric people mm-hmm. comedies. I think it dates at least. I'm trying to think of what the first movie that did that was at least at least as far back as Local Hero. Um, 
but yeah, the, um, the, the the small town full of quirky people uh, or small town of squares doing something quirky to make yeah. ends meet. Uh, the ones that were uh, uh, a big deal from Australia at the time, but the castle was a big one. Mm. Uh, the dish was very popular. I oh, like yeah. I love the dish. A I like lot. the dish a lot. Um, yeah. There's uh, welcome to whoop whoop. Oh yeah, yeah. There you go. Mm. Uh, but also like not quite in that same vein. But strictly ballroom was a big crossover success. Yeah. Over here. It wasn't yeah. a blockbuster, but it did really really well. I guess, I guess Baz Luhrmann brought a lot of that over mm-hmm. with strictly ballroom and just. I, mm. I never saw his film Australia. The big flex on that one. Yeah. Uh, P.J. Hogan, uh, you know, had a few breakouts over here, especially Muriel's Wedding. Yeah. Was a big one. Very charming film. Yeah, I like that a lot. The one I remember, actually, everyone was talking about it when I was young, and then they just kind of stopped. But I finally tracked it down. I guess, Jesus, I'm old. I guess it's like 10 years ago now. There's this really delightfully charming uh, movie called Malcolm from 1986, uh, which is about this... Um, uh, just this sort of like almost Wallace and Gromit esque inventor mm-hmm. who uh, ends up like befriending a couple of novice bank robbers and helping them rob banks with his inventions. <laughs> that sounds adorable. It's absolutely charming. You must see this movie if you haven't seen it. It's a delight. It's very very sweet. Mm. Um, won a couple of awards and then just people forgot about it. Yeah. But it's really really cute. And I, mm. I wish more people had seen Malcolm. Oh, and and if you haven't seen um. Uh, Starstruck. Which one's that? Uh, it's a, it's a musical from 1982. I don't um, know this one. Yeah, it's on the Criterion channel. Uh, oh. I really highly recommend Starstruck. Uh, but yeah, apart from Mad Max and Crocodile Dundee, there haven't been giant uh, Australian hits. But that is enough for, I think, a lot of Americans to uh, sort of have absorbed kind of by osmosis a lot of sort of the more cliched aspects of Australian culture, mm-hmm. but at least some Australian they, culture. There was, there was a vibe yeah. uh, that, that came across. Um, I, we also briefly had uh, the success of Yahoo Serious. And I will go to bat for <laughs> Young Einstein. I haven't seen Young Einstein I since I was a kid. go to bat for Young Einstein. Young Einstein uh, is uh, an alternate version of Albert Einstein's young life. Where he but came it, from Australia. Where he, where he came from Australia. And you know the, the reason he was able to split atoms was because that was the only way to put, put bubbles in beer. <laughs> and it turns out because light and, moves in particles yeah. and waves. So it's like it yeah. rolls and it also has like a rock in it. And that's how Einstein invented rock and roll. <laughs> oh, God. There's a line in, Yah- in uh, Yahoo Sirius's Young Einstein that I've never understood. Okay. And I don't know if there's any scientific basis to it, but it always amuses me. There's a part at the end where a bad guy is going to misuse Albert Einstein's invention to put bubbles into beer and turn it into a nuclear bomb. Mm. And the only way to stop the nuclear bomb from killing us all is for Einstein to channel the energy of the nuclear bomb into his newly invented electric guitar. Mm. And there's a specifically bit, playing at four four time. That's what I'm getting at. Right. There's a couple of scientists listening on the radio. Wait a minute, that's four four time. Uh. Yes, four four time. That'll drain the power out of anything. <laughs> the fuck does that even mean? <laughs> Nothing. It's it's, it's kind of. Is that there anything? It's like one a- of those lines of dialogue you have to add later just to explain a plot <laughs> point that doesn't quite make sense. Anyway, uh, not all Australian cinema 
gets out of here, just like not all American cinema gets to every country in the world and vice versa. Mm. Uh, but there is a, a market for it, and there have been a lot of breakout hits, some of them blockbusters, most of them in, on the independent scene. Oftentimes Hollywood comes like looking at Australian filmmakers and trying to you know, import them into America because there's a lot of films with a really incredible personality mm. that come out of Australia and New Zealand. Uh, so, um, yeah, that hopefully that answers your question. All right. All right. Uh, great, great letter. Thank, I love yeah, Australian thank, cinema. Thank That's great. Um, here is a letter. Our next letter is from David. Hello, David. Uh, hi, Bibbs and Whitney. I hope you find gentlemen are doing well and keeping relatively sane during this hopefully last stretch of the worst of the pandemic. Oh, my God. Uh, fingers crossed. We're staying, still staying safe. All right. Uh, we're, we're, there's, there's light at the end of the tunnel, but we're still in the tunnel. Yeah. Um, I'll finally feel that the worst is behind us once I've, I'm sitting in a theater this summer, finally seeing In the Heights and Fast and Furious 9. Uh, this year so far, I've been aiming to watch more international and non-English language and American uh, and American films, and have been attempting to uncover as many films and directors that I had not previously encountered before. One such director, hmm. whose work I have been going through of late, is Hu Xiaoxian. And oh, despite yeah. the best efforts of Western distributors, I've managed to track down a number of his films on DVD and Blu-ray, mainly due to the great remasters from the Masters of China series, Masters of Cinema series, excuse me. He's actually a Taiwanese director. Uh, and... But some have been tougher to find. My copy of A City of Sadness came all the way from an eBay seller in Thailand. I think the back cover says it has English subtitles. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Otherwise, I'll be teaching myself Taiwanese Mandarin. Uh, so far, I've loved Hu uh, Xiaoxian's Cute Girl, Daughter of the Nile, and The Assassin. I'm looking forward to watching more of his work. It's a shame that such a great, respected filmmaker isn't afforded the same kind of home distribution privileges as, say, Akira Kurosawa or Edward Yang. In my experience, streaming services would hardly bother to preserve or feature such films from around the world. For all the positing Amazon and Netflix do regarding preserving cinema and working with the likes of Martin Scorsese, Noah Baumbach, and Alfonso Cuaron, their international and art house categories are largely non-existent beyond the odd films here and there. Even then, they'll be snatched off the service before long. I greatly appreciate the Criterion Collection and Masters of Cinema, but they can't remaster, release, and pres preserve every movie. So wow, I'm have, sure they'd like to. So I have two questions for you. Firstly, what are your thoughts on the works of Hu, Hu Xiaoxian? Mm -hmm. Secondly, do you think that with its mishmash collection of films that streaming is causing a decline in the preservation and recognition of the history of international cinema in a time when physical media could be seen as dying out? Thanks for taking the time to read my letter and answering my question as always. Appreciate it, David. Uh, Winnie, I'm actually, I'm going to just... Totally admitted, I am not as familiar with the works of Hu Xiaoxian okay. as I would like. Have you seen any films by Hu Xiaoxian? Um, I've seen... What have I seen? I've seen A Time to Live and A Time to Die. Mm -hmm. um, the Assassin was a big one. Did you see that one? I didn't see The Assassin. Okay. Um, I think I saw... I didn't see City of Sadness. I've heard that was a really good one. I think that one was on the, mm -hmm. uh, uh, the Sight and Sound poll. Like last yeah, year, like yeah. Like in like a hundred something. Mm -hmm. And I saw, um, and I saw the one he did with um, Shu Chi. Um, oh, there was the first one I saw. It was uh, Millennium Mambo. Oh, okay. I saw Millennium Mambo, which he did in the the early two thousands. Amongst uh, the film critic circles mm. I frequent. Um, oh, oh, and I saw Flight of the Red Balloon. Okay, which which is sort of like a, a remake of the Red Balloon. Interesting. Uh, amongst the film critic circles I frequent, Hu uh, Xiaoxian mm. is spoken of in hushed tones. Yeah. And I'm deeply ashamed to admit that I'm just not as familiar with his work as I should be, and I've been meaning mm. to get on that. Um, well, you've been meaning to get on it, but again, as, as yeah. David says, Hu um, Xiaoxian isn't the kind of thing that you'll find outside of like the Criterion Collection or maybe Ovid. 
uh, he's he's considered sort of a deep cut art house auteur here in the United States. Yeah. Uh, a because uh, just for whatever reason, his films aren't getting like as wide distribution as some other uh, other filmmakers. But also because his work tends to be very sort of uh, very quiet and very contemplative. He doesn't make these sort of big action blockbusters. He tends to make really uh, emotionally cozy kind of films, if that's uh, an appropriate mm. adjective. I just I just looked up Who's House. I was curious mm. what was available right now. Mm. I looked up Who's House on JustWatch.com, which if you're unfamiliar oh, with okay. it, is a website where you put in a movie title mm. or a name, and they'll tell you where that's streaming. Mm. Uh, and uh, sometimes there's it's not streaming. It just doesn't show up. Um, in the case of Hussein, hmm. uh, I found The Assassin, okay, which is one of his more recent movies, and it's uh, currently on uh, Prime Video for no additional fee, so oh, okay. that's easy to track down. Uh, also on Prime Video and Canopy for no additional fee, uh, there's The Time to Live and The Time to Die. All right. So if everyone's listening and familiar with them. And then the next thing down is a Zhang Yimou film. Oh gosh! So like they just <laughs> that's it. Well, maybe maybe Hu Xiaoshan uh, wrote it. Did, but, uh... I, did, did he write Raise the Red Lantern? Oh, uh, I love Raise the Red Lantern. I don't know. I don't know who. Okay. Wrote, I don't know the screenwriter of Raise the Red Lantern. All right, I go, I'll look that up. Watch Raise the Red Lantern. That's a good movie too. Fair but enough. um, uh, so yeah, uh, unfortunately, there are a lot of uh, masters, especially he from, produced Raise the Red Lantern. He produced Raise the Red. Okay, Lantern. So okay, so fair enough. Uh, there's a lot of uh, international directors who are really well regarded for uh, you know critics or people who follow such things, but uh, aren't getting a lot of wide distribution. I found, and who knows why that is? I don't know why there mm. aren't more studios going to certain areas of the world and finding a lot of these more interesting world cinema. Pieces Sometimes of world cinema. I remember there are a lot of people in the kung fu film circles. Mm. Uh, had a real, like, just absolute hatred for Harvey Weinstein before it was popular to do so. <laughs> um, because what Weinstein would do is he would go to, to Hong Kong, China, and uh, he would, or, or anywhere, and he would buy up all these action movies mm. and then never release them at all. Or if he did, he would edit them, mm. change them, dub them. Um, he added, like, in a postscript, a love story, an Iron Monkey that didn't exist before. Like, right, it was right, really right. weird and just completely disrespectful. And there was this general sense, I don't know how true this is, but there's this general sense among the Hong Kong, you know, action fan community that it was basically like, these movies make American action movies look bad <laughs> because the action <laughs> is so much better and they're actively just not interested in giving them major releases. Mm. They're just not. So that might, that might be a thing. There might be a perception that American audiences aren't interested in international cinema, which is a perception I run into time and time again, hmm. that is often completely debunked, and in fact is often debunked on streaming. A lot of streaming services offer a lot of international movies and television shows that do well. Mm -hmm. We should have more of them, and they should be highlighted more. Yeah, I know, it's ridiculous. I know Net Netflix gets a lot of crap for having a, a bad international selection, and generally speaking, it is. But if you're into Bollywood movies, mm -hmm. you're pretty well covered by Netflix. They have a lot of films from India. They have a lot. Uh, of, they have a lot of TV from. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm sure it's only a small portion, mm -hmm. but they have a lot of TV from uh, Japan. Yeah, uh, and yeah. China as well. So like, there's there's, there's a pretty sizable uh, anime collection. Mm -hmm. uh, I know they're. If you're, like, a deep-cut anime fan, I'm sure you know how to go to, like, Crunchyroll and find things that uh, 
or are a little bit more varied, but there's still plenty of anime to choose from on something like Netflix. If you're looking for those kinds of films, you do have to go to, uh, I would say you'd have to go to Ovid. Or uh, if you're looking for newer films, try the Lamley Virtual Cinemas or a lot of the uh, mm. find what like local art houses you have in your in your city. And I'm talking about the United mm. States. Yeah. And it's entirely likely that the pandemic forced them to open virtual cinemas where they now offer their own uh, rent rent to watch uh, streaming. Uh, that's how I was able to see a quote of Saida. I actually rented it from the Lemley Virtual Cinema. Oh, there you go. So a lot of these art things are available. They're just not available necessarily on the bigger, more advertised streaming services. Yeah. But if you're interested in this kind of thing, and we can't guarantee that specifically yeah. what you're looking for is on them, there are streaming services that do have a lot of really exciting material from other countries yeah, that don't get yeah, the yeah. highlight here. You mentioned Ovid. Ovid, O-V-I-D yeah. is a good example. Uh, they have the real deep cut stuff. Uh, yeah, Mubi yeah. is an excellent one. That's an interesting service because what they offer changes month to month. So, like, it, it can be frustrating if you're, like, really excited for something and then now it's gone. But it's very well curated. So yeah, it's definitely yeah, worth like, checking out. Both Mubi and Ovid are sort of like the museum streaming services. The yeah. things that would show in museums are only in one art house in New York for, like, a week. Uh, so, yeah, Hu Xiaoshan would definitely show up in a service like that. Um, we had a poll. Uh, we asked our listeners to pick us uh, a film from Ovid that we would watch on our streaming club as part mm. of Critically Acclaimed. I chose a Lav Diaz film. Because of course uh, he did. Lav Diaz is a Filipino filmmaker who uh, is notorious for making incredibly long films. I think his shortest film is just over four hours long. So, yeah, suck it, Zack Snyder. Uh, <laughs> Zack Snyder's making these four-hour superhero films. Lav Diaz, man, could, yeah. <laughs> could pound you into the ground with his 12-hour epic where nothing happens. Hashtag restore the Lav Diaz verse. <laughs> Or, or you know, Bellatar Satan Tango, which yeah. is you know, another notoriously long film. It's seven hours long. Oh, I, uh, I bet Satan Tango would really beat up yeah. Superman in a fight. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that kind of movie. I just assume Satan it's, Tango is like a really big monster. Like, uh, there's a monster called Satan Tango. Doesn't that sound like a giant monster? You know what? I bet there's like some hardworking writer at DC Comics who's also a big Bailatar fan and who's been trying to get a character called Satan Tango into the comics at some point. And like keep and has like pitched it to every manager he's worked for. That and it just hasn't hasn't gotten any traction yet. Yeah. Anyway, um, so yeah, um, yeah. As for Hu Xiaoxian, I I like the films I've seen. I feel like I I he's a little up, un, underrepresented in my uh, yeah. my experience. However. And regarding international cinema on streaming, we we expounded mm. a fair amount, but it's it's kind of a double edged sword. I know a lot of people are more exposed to international cinema than ever before because they have streaming and what is available is available so readily mm. that taking a chance on it is sort of an easier thing to do than like, oh, we're going to this movie theater and they're playing three movies and two of them are big Hollywood blockbusters and one of them is a interesting sounding international film that but I've never heard of it before. Mm. People tend to gravitate towards what they know. Yeah. Because at that point, mon extra money is on the line and we went out for it and like people are like, what's what feels safe? Um, but streaming can totally 
sort of mitigate that and give people more interest and opportunity in taking a chance and going outside of their wheelhouse. Most people are often exposed mostly to art from wherever they're from. Because that's what they hear about the most. That's what no, people was, are talking it, about. It was made nearby. Yeah, yeah it's what's, that's what the publicity is all talking about right now. Um, so on, on one hand, it's cool that streaming services are making it easier for people to experience international cinema. On the other hand, it sucks that such a small fraction of it is available. It's more than was available to a lot of people until recently, but it's nowhere near enough. And so hopefully as time goes by, and we've seen this, I think, a lot this last year with COVID, where a lot of streaming services were like, crap, uh, we didn't actually plan to be everyone's main source of entertainment for so long. And maybe we're starting to run low on our original material. And so we can really push some of this international material. Mm. Um, So hopefully they realize that there's a lot of great stuff out there and people want to see it. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Anyway, moving on. Uh, here's a letter from Andrew. Hello, Andrew. Hi, Andrew. Um, hello, gentle folks. Uh, I run a website which has a wide away, array of whiters covering a wide array of films. Uh, if you'll allow me mentioning it, it's called The Curb. Okay. A fair of uh, the reviewers are young green critics who are keen on cutting their teeth on any and all films that come their way. Uh, yeah, you, you remember that period. Sure. When you're in your 20s and you just want to eat everything. Yeah, you're, you're, uh, this, this is an exciting time. Mm. You get to finally like dip your toe into the waters of... Mm. Not just criticism, but also the community around uh, the film community. You know, the people making movies, people writing about movies. Well, just the wide variety of movies that you've never been exposed to. No, no, it's it's a really Uh, exciting time to be anyone, really, but yeah. Uh, However, one of the types of cinema that routinely trips up these writers is the field of documentaries. Mm. For many critics, writing about or discussing documentaries becomes more difficult than discussing fiction or dramatized features. For one, it's harder to discuss the performances or the direction or to remain objective to a real event. I've long suggested on how to cover documentaries, but I would love to hear from you, two seasoned critics who have discussed a multitude of film formats on how younger critics or reviewers should best explore documentaries and what pointers would be helpful to look out for when watching and reviewing the genre. Thank you both in advance. I hope you're both keeping well and staying safe, safe from another friend in Australia. Oh. Uh, Andrew. Andrew. Andrew, thank you so much for writing in. That is maybe a little inside baseball for for some people who don't write criticism, Mm. but that's a great question if you do. (laughs) That's a fantastic question, and I still wrestle with this, actually. Mm. Um, I've made no secret that when it comes to cinema, documentaries are one of my biggest blind spots. Um, Mm. I, I like documentaries fine, but I tend to gravitate towards narrative fiction. It's just a general interest of mine. Mm. And honestly, the stuff you're talking about is one of the reasons why I do that. Documentaries are often very informational. Sometimes they're flat out didactic and they're trying Mm. to teach you something. But either way, they're trying to show you an aspect of the real world. And that doesn't necessarily engage with the audience on the same level of, will this guy be able to pull off this bank heist and get the girl? (laughs) Like that kind of thing. So it's a, diff- it's a different kind of story. It's a different kind of story. Sometimes there is no story directly. Mm. Um, and it's different talking about it. You again, you cannot talk about the performance of the lead character in a documentary unless it's like sort of a recreation, which is happens, but it's rare. Yeah. Um, so yeah. How do you, as a critic, when you're used to talking about films a very specific way, mm how do you start talking about documentaries? And I would argue that you just don't try to talk about them the same way because although they're yeah, using um, the same cinematic language, they exist for a very different reason. 
Well, they're they're using the same tools, but yeah, it's it's a, a completely different kind of form, and the discussions around film do tend to be uh, about the construct of film, about the writing of a film, about, about yeah. characters in a film, the, the creative process uh, of a film, rather than the medium of film and the way uh, cinema can be used, not just as a way to tell stories, but as a way to report. And how uh, and there is good reportage and there's bad reportage. Yeah, that's I think it's and, you're, uh, either, you're talking about the reportage as yeah. opposed to the the subject, which can be mm. criticized if it is disappointing, yeah. if it's fictional. But if it's reality, you can't argue reality. Mm. You might say it's so skewed if, in, in opinion wise, but you still can't argue what mm. we're looking at. So you got to talk about. The reportage. Yeah, and and if if you see enough documentaries, you'll be able to start to discern the difference as to when uh, something is being communicated well and reported on well and reported on thoroughly, or uh, if not thoroughly, because it's not a documentary's job to have every point of view like a dry news program. Um, It it actually and and even even then it would take way too long. Yeah, no, life is too complicated. It it affects a point of view. So if it's communicating that point of view, uh, then maybe it's doing its job well, provided uh, if you, however, are educated in the topic that they're talking about Mm. and you understand that they're probably going to be missing a lot of, uh, a lot of details, then that's, that's a valid criticism of a documentary that they're making these points while deliberately eschewing other things. I I think that's why, um, really uh, polemical documentarians like Michael Moore get into trouble because he affects a point of view, surely. Yeah. But a lot of people point out that he's actually leaving out crucial details or he's just not bothering to do a lot of the heavy lifting to incorporate those details. Yeah, especially if they mm. don't support his argument. Mm. And this can be for something purely didactic, too. There's a documentary mm. that came out like two years ago, I think now, called Making Waves, which is a mm. rather good documentary about sound design in the film industry. And it's all about the job of sound design and the history of sound design. And if you are completely unfamiliar with how sound design works in movies, it's a pretty good introduction. Mm. If you are familiar with it, you're going to notice that there's a lot of stuff that kind of gets the short shrift because they were... It feels like they were mostly interested in talking about sound after sort of films like Apocalypse Now and Star Wars revolutionized how sound worked in the Mm. cinema. It also probably doesn't help that most of the people who are working on sound design before that are no longer with us. So it's hard to interview them. Um, So that's one where I had to say, like, if you're new to the subject, this is a really good documentary. If you're familiar with the subject, it actually has some holes in Mm -hmm. it. So that's one where all I could really do was talk about the reportage because what they were actually showing us was fine. You know, Mm -hmm. it's good. And that's what you're saying is, is the information being conveyed in an interesting way, in a way that grabs your attention, whether it's thrilling or just, you know, doesn't make you bored. Mm. Um, is that information of interest? Is it valuable? Does the movie make a case for why this is worth making a documentary about? Uh, and at the end of the day, do you feel like the way that the information was conveyed was responsible? Mm. Was it being responsible? Was it being ethical? Uh, if there are multiple sides to the argument that seem valid, were those other sides addressed? And if not, is that a problem? Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. Mm-hmm. If we're if they're being totally honest about how we're just one point of view, fine. You just have to be honest about that. Yeah. There's a certain responsibility to that. And that's kind of it for, for documentaries, I feel like. And that's one of the reasons why I'm a little less interested sometimes in reviewing them, because it's basically just like, did I learn something today? Cool. Was I bored? Well, 
Cool. Great. Good documentary. I kind of well, and because, I struggle with that sometimes. However, because um, because they're real people, uh, the the dramatic impact can be much greater. True. I'm Very watching true. a film like Collective, which is about uh, just complete corruption in government and hospital systems that led to a lot of people dying. Like they were injured in a fire in a club called Collective, but a lot of them died in the hospital afterwards just because the hospitals were grievously underfunded and they were grievously underfunded because of this rampant corruption that yeah. like stretched throughout the system. And you get to see the people like on the ground actually doing the fight and how frustrated they get. And that is a very, that's a, a much more human thing than any actor could put in there mm. because this is something that real people are actually dealing with. Uh, so I think there's a lot more uh, dramatic immediacy to the documentary yeah. form. Uh, when you're doing, like, say, a biography, you get to, A, get a lot more education, and you get to be a little bit more critical as to the tone mm. of it. Is it trying to depict this person as, like, being so super great that they have no flaws? If if they are, then that's a bad documentary. Yeah, probably. Uh, yeah. Because they're not getting... Uh, humans do have flaws, and we want to yeah. see all of that. Yeah, we want we want to learn about mm. the person, not mm. just about the the what's the word I'm looking for, not just the legend. The, the legend, yeah. yeah the, the legend is fine, but mm. you had to make a movie about legends mm. and how legends actually have multiple layers and levels mm. to them. If you're going to do that, that's why yeah. you know something like Alex Winter's Zappa is really interesting because mm. he's actually trying to go through an entire history of a person, whereas. Um, I hate to say his name, but those those execrable films by the execrable Dinesh D'Souza oh, yeah. uh, are, are really kind of fe- feel really false because they are. Well, because There's they're propaganda. Of, they're propaganda. They're making yeah. stuff up. They're trying to depict history in a very specific way yeah. and are ignoring a lot uh, to make it look that way. And propaganda is dangerous for that reason. Mm. Propaganda, yeah. you know, if you can make propaganda about stuff you agree with. That's how propaganda works. Yeah. Um, but it can still be a serious problem because propaganda is basically the art of downplaying any opposing viewpoint mm. and making it seem like the viewpoint that you espouse is the only rational one and the only moral one. And that's often, if not always, pretty reprehensible. So that's something you can think about as well. Mm. I think something you brought up, because uh, you're talking about like how do we tell people, like how do we instruct people to mm. write about documentaries if they're not used to it. And something you said, I think, really hit it on the head for me. And again, we, we enter these off the cuff, and I think you know, if I were mm. writing an essay about this, I would be mm. more articulate. But yeah, we'd, we'd um, have time to think about it and write it. Yeah, and then, we'd, and then we'd sort of highlight the important parts and the parts that we think are the most valid. But I think this is a really important one. Um, he talked about how because the stories are real, they can have a greater impact. Mm. Not necessarily. Some fiction is absolutely incredibly mm. impactful, and some documentaries make no impact at all, but theoretically. Mm. The, the, it, the idea behind it. That, yeah. That's what I was getting Yeah, at. that's why we do it. Because um, mm. we want to illuminate, we want to share experiences with the world, and ideas, and information. That impact is the same whether it's documentary or fiction. Mm. How it makes you feel. The form might be a little different and the type of conversation you have about it may be less about uh, discussing creative decision making and be more about deciding, like talking about like what the filmmaker decided to show and what they decided to edit out as opposed to what decided to create and not. But how they make you feel, mm-hmm. how they made you empathize, how they made uh, life seem, how they made history look. That matters regardless. And I think if you stay focused on that, 
Mm. I think then you're going to get to something important. You need to talk about what's in the documentary, just like you need to talk about what's in the plot of a movie. And you need to talk about how that thing made you feel and how it made you feel that way. And the rest of it, just wash that away. Mm. That's just form. The, the, the actual meat of a, a, a criticism is talking about the impact it had on you, the viewer, mm. and how it made that impact. That's it. I think if you stay focused on that, it doesn't matter what you're reviewing. But I do admit that documentaries are a different form, and sometimes the actual nuts and bolts of the writing can be a little daunting, and I've struggled with that too. Mm. But I think I think you stay focused yeah. on what's important, and I think it, you'll get yeah, through it. Um, and... Yeah, f- familiarize yourself with the form as much yeah. as you can. Yeah. Watch a lot of documentaries. Watch a lot of Frederick Wiseman. Yeah. And, uh, oh, hey, hey yeah. let's, let's, let's uh, oh, talk so about B- the screen's yeah, margins. B-, B. Peterson actually has their own podcast devoted to Frederick Wiseman right now. Yeah. So if you go over to the screen screen's margins, you can listen to uh, B. Peterson, who has appeared on this show. Uh, uh, you can hear them talking about... All, all, they're going through, I think, every Frederick Wiseman documentary, I think, is it randomly? Oh, no, it's in reverse chronological order. I think it's in reverse chronological yeah, order. Yeah, from the newest to, to yeah. uh, his earliest. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's a great starting point. Frederick mm-hmm. Wiseman is a great starting point. You may also want to, like, it might be a good idea just to, like, hey, if you're going to review documentaries, mm-hmm. and this is true, I think, for anything. Like, again, we don't want to be, like, gatekeepy about this, but at the same time, well, if, just, you're pursue, educate yourself if you're going to pursue... educate yourself If you're going to pursue a career in art criticism, you need to be curious about the arts and you need mm. to be willing to educate yourself more than you already are. And that goes for us too. We're constantly trying to educate ourselves about filmmakers and films and genres and international films and, and all these different things that we didn't know about yesterday. Yeah. And that journey never stops. That's, that's the life of a film critic is mm. to constantly be learning about what's going on today and what's going on yesterday. Um, so if there are people who are like, Hey, I want to write reviews, but I find it difficult to discuss documentaries, make sure they're watching documentaries, recommend some classic documentaries, at least to give them sort of the bullet points of the medium, Hmm. you know? So that might be a good place to to go as well. Um, hopefully they would be interested enough and hopefully they have those films available as well. Hmm. Not always, not always the case, but, um, anyway, um, hopefully that helps. I realize that was a bit rambling, but um, I think it's a really, really good conversation to have. And I love talking about the form and construct of film criticism. It feels like there isn't like a big market for that. Yeah, like <laughs> it's a pretty small market. But it's a lot of interest. There's a lot of interesting, thought provoking, like idea ideology behind what it means to be an art critic. Hmm. In particular, film critic is what we focus on. Yeah, but. There's a lot of thought that goes into that. That's not just us like splattering words on a page. Like we we really think about it a lot, and it's, sometimes we have ideas and and philosophies that mm. we totally stick by, and other times we're really kind of fast and loose and just trying to learn <laughs> as we go. Yeah. yeah. Uh, had I my druthers and more time, I would have educated myself earlier, but the mm-hmm. education process never ends. So no, no, I never will. And there's, there's a lot I would have seen earlier in my life if I had known about it. Yeah. Or if it had been uh, available yeah. or, or vice versa. Or, or I, or I just wasn't squirreling away with my own bonkers obsessions. Well, it's, it's the simple fact is, and it gets harder with every passing year. No one has time to see literally everything. Yeah. No one. You, you weren't alive. Mm. Like, movies are lost now. You'll just never get to see those. That's just a literal fact. But there's so much to see. There's so much to catch up on. And you also have to live your life. That's an important part of being an art critic, too. Because 
art is commenting on life. If you're not trying to live your life mm. and have relationships that are meaningful to you or pursue goals that are important to you or do things like travel or take care of yourself spiritually or uh, psychologically, all these different aspects of the human existence, that's important too because that helps mm. you relate not only to the world itself and, and your life, which is the most important thing, mm. but also to art. Yeah. The more experiences you have in your life, the more you'll actually understand when art feels false. Yeah, yeah. Um, or when it truly connects and, and truly mm. inspires. And you look back at a movie about, for example, I've talked about this before, when my, I, I was very lucky. I didn't lose a lot of people close to me when I was very young. Mm. So it was when my father died when I was in my early 30s, I was emotionally unprepared. Yeah, like I didn't yeah. know what I was going to get into. And it was only then that I realized how many movies, I'd seen so many movies where people's parents died. And it was only then that I realized how many of them felt really fake. <laughs> yeah, that you and also, used it as a, yeah. a plot point rather than yeah. a, a, some, some like actually emotional, genuine experience. But then the ones that actually did nail it meant that much more. And I could actually look back at them. It's like, yeah, that movie got it. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, same thing. Uh, like I, I started uh, noticing different things in movies when I became a parent. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. I uh, that seeing, be the case. seeing kids in peril now had a, a little bit of a different impact, especially when it was when young children died in movies. All of a sudden, that like hit me in the gut. Yeah, yeah. Um, that. There was, uh, and I, I brought this one up a couple times, but there was the the Diane Kruger thriller. Um, oh, what, what? Yeah, you brought this up so many times. What the um, hell movie was it? <laughs> That movie came and went. Hold on, I'll look it up. Yeah, it it came and went. It it had a really kind of... uh, I got it. Kind of a a, a nondescript title. uh, But yeah, it was was about a a woman who lost her husband and and young child who was like, I think it's like four years old. Was it In the Fade? It was In the Fade. That was it. Um, In the Fade, uh, where she, yeah, she plays a woman. She loses her her husband and her young child in a bomb blast, like a a terrorist attack. Mm. And there's a scene in that movie where, and it, it's about sort of her her grieving process and what she's going to do once she starts finding out more details about the attack. Yeah. Um, but there's a scene where she goes into the child's casket emporium that was just <laughs> devastating. First of all, that just Jesus. having... To have an emporium uh, to, for that alone. Well, I mean, people need it. it I know. It's it an industry, it's just, it's but uh, you know, perverse, it's, you know? yeah, the, the, there's a scene set in a child's casket emporium and like looking at what the way some of these child's casket looks looked. And uh, one of them was in the shape of a fire truck. And just like seeing the kid's casket, like made me start bawling. Oh, that's I, horrifying. And I wouldn't, I probably wouldn't have had that intense a reaction. I mean, it's, that's a, a sad thing to look at. But yeah. I wouldn't have had that intense kind of reaction. You could have if detached it wasn't the a father. Or, yeah. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, excuse me. If if you want to be a better critic in general, travel. Yeah. Read. To read a lot of books. Yeah, of different subjects, go, not just go, film. Go to museums a lot. Yeah. Uh, and Interact with other human beings. Mm. And again, everyone does eat, that eat in a, a different yeah, way. Eat but a yeah. lot of different interesting foods if that's your bag. Uh, yeah. you know, study a, study different religions and philosophies yeah, the, outside of the ones you're used to. Yeah, um, your your life experience is going to help. Yeah. Now there is a way to just sort of sit and consume and be a great critic. That's possible too. Sure, but uh, I recommend the broader life experience. Well, again, I just, as as we said, being a critic mm. is not. I I've, I've seen a lot of movies and I'm good to go. No, it's a constant process. You're constantly mm. discovering not just new movies but old movies and things about yourself. And as you yourself grow as a person, and you will. Mm. 
the person you are now is not who you you're gonna be in 20 years you want you that's not who you what's not what you want you want to get wiser you want to get you know cooler and smarter and funnier and kinder <laughs> you, you want to grow mm. as an individual and evolve mm. in a positive way i hope mm. um and that means that the way you will be different and the way you experience art will be different and you need to be constantly pursuing that i think i think that's just good advice for anyone but if you're a writer and even and film criticism is an art form it is writing mm. that's part of it so yeah. yeah constantly if you don't know a lot about a thing watch more of that thing mm. read more about that thing get involved in that thing try to make that thing do the thing in your in your spare time if you can now i'm just picturing like a, a fun like early mtv music video tie into john carpenter's the thing where it's like do the thing blam what happened to that dog blam <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> jesus Looks like someone's been a bad dog. <laughs> uh, one more letter? <laughs> yeah, we'll do one more. All right. Here's a letter from Todd. Hello, Todd. Hi, Todd. Um, hello, gentlemen. In a recent letter, someone brought up a currently unreleased movie parodying soap operas in the vein of 1980s Airplane. Over the years, I have found the concept of parodying soap operas to be pointless. In my opinion, for a parody to work, it has to make itself more over the top than the work it is trying to send up. Soap operas are already over the top. There's nowhere to go with the parody that the original, uh, that the original shows they are making fun of haven't gone already. No line alterations, no line deliveries, no scripting, no acting, no overacting, no plots can outdo the ridiculousness of actual soap operas. I don't think that's a criticism. I think it's just being descriptive. That's, we'll talk uh, about it. <clears throat> When I was young, I loved the movie Soap Dish nice. because, well, I was young and I was dumb. <laughs> Soap Dish, I loved it as a kid too. I, yeah. I found it, it doesn't hold up. Maybe I need to watch the, it the, again. The ending hits problem territory, yeah, but, and but still then it's really there's, good. There's, yeah, there's a transphobic joke at the end. Yeah, but, it really, really lands with a thud, yeah. Uh, but as an adult now, I realized that nothing they did in that movie was new. It all happened on actual shows. A few years ago, I caught a scene of Days of Our Lives where they were having what looked like a funeral service, and the rich uncle came out of the shadows and said, and I quote, that was wonderful, but let's all look at this now. And then he went on to reveal his sinister plot. And how do you parody something that's already kind of a parody of itself? Seriously, I don't have an answer. Uh, also in an episode of one of your podcasts a few months ago, you mentioned... Uh, how that cardboard cutout looking animation always reminded you of South Park. Not me. I'm reminded of the 1982 practically unreleased twice upon a time. Oh yeah. Uh, there were, film. there yeah. were conflicting producers working on that movie. One wanted it to be a children's movie. The other wanted it to be an adult comedy. Uh, when it was initially released at a film festival, the first producer flipped out and made the director make cuts. Then it aired on HBO with some of the requested edits and then was pulled after only three showings. Then more cuts were made before being shown on Showtime and then more cuts. And then it was shown on Comedy Central completely neutered and it wasn't released on DVD for decades. The uncut version is even harder to find. Uh, it was on YouTube for a while, but it gets taken down. Uh, enjoy the long letter and have a nice day. Thank you, Todd. Uh, I don't know Twice Upon a Time. I've seen Twice Upon a Time. Mm -hmm. uh, Twice Upon a Time is a 1983 animated film that was produced by George Lucas. Mm -hmm. And it had that kind of cardboard cutout mm -hmm. uh, animation, which they called Lumage or Lumage. I've actually never heard it pronounced. Oh, um, and it was one of, if not the first films David Fincher worked on. Mm -hmm. um, before he was a director, obviously, mm -hmm. as he was doing technical stuff. Um and yeah, that's that's entirely right. It was some people wanted it to be a kids movie, and it's about like two fairy tale creatures, one of whom is 
I would be shocked if this wasn't a direct inspiration for Adventure Time mm. because it's a dog that's like the exact same color as a dog from Adventure Time and it shapeshifts and it's voiced <laughs> by Lorenzo like, Music. Oh, um, oh, yeah, so yeah. definitely. Yeah, almost definitely mm. a direct influence on Adventure mm. Time. But um, but they end. But the cool thing is they end up in the real world and they like add the mm. animation into real world stuff. And, um, and But yeah, there's also this tone of it trying to be this kind of freewheeling, let these adult comedians like ramble and use a lot of cuss words that really don't add anything to the narrative in this case. It's not an adult story. Mm. Um, the movie's, see, the movie's fine. It's definitely cu- cussing an animation is still pretty rare. I mean, yeah, but, pre, but, it, but, but there are movies where it's about adult stuff. And then mm. there's this thing, which is a kid's fairy tale, which weird, it's weird that it has cussing in it. Mm. Like it, just, it feels unnecessary. Like it just doesn't really, okay. it's, it's like, uh, it's like hearing Batman say fuck in the new Zack Snyder <laughs> movie where he's just like, Hey Joker, I'm going to fuck you up. Yeah, like, what is the actual like, line of dialogue? It, it, it was, I will fucking kill you. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, you don't need that F word. That F word isn't helping anything. Mm-hmm. It's not like not like supporting anything. Like it's also you also use it early in the film when Cyborg says "fuck the world," which is just sort of like, <laughs> yeah, we didn't actually need that. The sentiment mm-hmm. comes across regardless, and he ends up feeling a lot more immature did, than he's supposed to. I think. Did you see that live action Titans TV series that they were putting on the DC Universe? Channel? I saw. I saw. Where, yeah, I where, saw it. Where Robin said "fuck Batman." Yeah. <laughs> When he's supposed to be immature because he's like a young superhero, but yeah, regardless, right. yeah, it comes across as really immature. But I swear, like a sailor, okay, people have heard this podcast, like, there's I swear, rather, mm. I've actually been trying to curtail it, but I do. Mm. There are times when you don't do it, <laughs> there are times yeah. when it completely undercuts what you're trying to convey, so don't do that. Um, but, uh, but anyway, twice upon a time, it's I believe it's still currently available on DVD. It's worth checking out. It's not amazing, but it is an interesting animation experiment. Uh, regarding movies about soap operas, um, I, I grew up watching soap operas. In particular, yeah, I watched As the World Turns and Before It, Bold and the Beautiful, because it was on right before it. Um, that was the soap opera that my mom had watched since like it first premiered on television in the 50s. And she'd barely missed an episode. <laughs> she loved that and show. I, I know a lot of those soap operas even started on radio. Like before yeah. there was even TV. These I think soap the World Turns did too. I could be wrong about it. I know General that. Hospital was that way. Yeah. So like there's, these shows have this impossibly long mm. history. And sometimes, yeah, they're really arch and ludicrous. Mm. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're just melodramas. There's ongoing melodramas. And like, you know, you, you, you try telling a story about familial strife for 70 years and without running out of ideas and doing <laughs> some weird now and then, you know, like, so mm. the idea that it's impossible to parody a soap opera, I think has less to do with the fact that soap operas are already kind of weird. They are. Uh, I think it has more to do with the fact that increasingly over the last 20 or 30 years, the f- daytime soap opera has gone out of fashion and a lot fewer people watch them. And a lot fewer people are intimately familiar with them. So it's very, very hard to satirize something if the people in the audience mm. aren't familiar with what you're satirizing because yeah. they don't get the jokes in the first place. They don't understand what reality you're playing off of mm. in order to get to the joke. And so it all comes across as kind of weird. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. Um, uh, something uh, that was part of the, the conversation uh, during uh, the Trump administration was the idea of Poe's Law. Uh, nothing to do with Edgar Allan Poe. It's a d- different author named Poe. But mm. the idea that um, 
something has become so over the top and strange that you can no longer satirize it uh, by exaggeration. There was some concern yeah. over uh, what the onion was going to do mm-hmm. when uh, something that they might have written as a headline is the real world. Remember when uh, mm-hmm. that like White House sanctioned doctor talked about like demon sperm? Like, remember that? That was really weird. I, I gotta tell you, man, yeah. and when that's kind of the whole, the last, like, four years of that oh. administration, every fucking day, something mm. happened that, if, if people, screenwriters joked about this on Twitter mm. all the time, if I put that in a script, people would say, take it out, it sounds stupidly on the nose. Yeah. People were just openly corrupt. People were just openly saying the most absurd, obvious lies that you've ever fucking heard, mm. and... It kind of broke a lot of people's, like, a lot of people suddenly, like, stopped believing things in movies because, like, I've talked about this before about how, like, you know, the end of a lot of movies where, like, if we just get this information to Congress, they'll hold a hearing and everything will be fine. And And now we know that, no. can't let that truth come out. And And now we know if they're rich and white, no. Yeah. They're not going to give a shit. They'll never impeach the president. They'll never, doesn't matter what they do. It could be the most horrible thing in the world. Mm. It's really disillusioning. And a lot of movies are based on illusion. They're based on the illusion that there's order to the world or that there's sanity or at the very least common decency or that people are capable of shame. For me, like the scene... I, in, I, I miss shame. <laughs> for, the, for me, like the, the, most, the best moment in the movie Mr. Smith Goes to Washington mm. isn't just like... The filibuster isn't scene, just yeah. the, Isn't just the filibuster. Mm. Which, back when you actually had to talk for hours on end for it to work, it isn't just going to say, I filibuster. Yeah. Okay, we'll just not vote on that ever. Uh, great. That's a terrible system. I'm, but you actually had to uh, do something. I'm so, I'm, so glad, I'm so glad there's no such thing as gridlock. Yeah. But, like, the scene in that movie that I think makes that movie is the idea of the corrupt senator, played by Claude Rains, mm. seeing the insurmountable inherent goodness of Jefferson Smith. Of seeing that the ideals, not the reality, because the reality is always corrupt, and the movie understands that. Mm. But the ideals that America is based on, the the myth of what America could be, the fantasy mm. of how it's supposed to work, is so powerful and so important and so meaningful that he collapses publicly in a fit of shame and admits his culpability. That's the fantasy. Yeah. That's the part that makes you feel good. The shame will actually work. Yeah. You can't. That's the thing. In the last four years, you you can't shame politicians into doing the right thing anymore. No. They'll just they'll just double and triple down and tell the lie again. Because they know that they're right. Because they know that thanks to things like gerrymandering or just having a a dedicated Mm. base who doesn't care what they do, that it doesn't fucking matter for the Mm. most part. And that's not saying it's always true. We've seen it happen. We've seen like you know the, the Trump lost. Mm. I, even I'm a little surprised by that. I, I think it's great, but I, I'm sur- I was surprised. I was like, "Holy I, shit!" I, can't I was, actually I was so bitter. I thought it's, he's mm. going to get reelected. Mm-hmm. He's going to extend term limits. He's going to be king. nothing's ever yeah, going to happen. Like nothing's awful, ever going to yeah. work again. I, it can't happen. Mm. But a lot of it's still broken, and a lot of us are still completely disillusioned by it. And I think that's going to affect the way that we treat fiction for a while. Mm. Just like something like um, it's it's not one on one comparison, obviously, but like look at what like nine eleven did to action movies. You know, yeah, after yeah. after that horrible tragedy on September eleventh, two thousand and one, 
all of a sudden, blowing up buildings wasn't fun in movies anymore. We had to wait a while before. I mean, mm. by the time we got around to Man of Steel, it's like, okay, we're over it now. But, but uh, not really, it took a while. People were still having a big conversation about like the end of that movie and how mm. it still made them feel weird. Because yeah. that devastation just isn't cool. We are consciously aware of the death toll that would mm. come with that. The actual human tragedy. In, when Independence Day came out, a lot of people were able to just sort of go like, well, that's absurd. You know, like yeah. that, 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 would, that would never, I don't need to think about this. This is just like some absurd thing. But um, yeah, so these mm. things change. And I think the way that we're going to treat government, for example... Hmm. In fiction is gonna shift. Well, but but you know, that, if it hasn't already, but that goes to uh, in a, a much more serious uh, way. Goes to what you're talking about about soap operas, uh, in that soap operas do have such broadly over the term stories that it's kind of hard to write a parody of them. I think the joke with Soap Dish was that the actors making those kinds of stories, hmm. uh, which were supposed to be big and over the top, were actually living these big dramatic stories. Backstage, yeah, as well. that was the joke. That was the joke. The of soap dish. The reality was mm. a soap opera. Mm. The soap dish is actually, in some respects, kind of ahead of its time because they're talking about because it's about that reality. Mm. It's about people acknowledging that soap operas aren't interesting anymore. Reality is already weird enough, and mm. it's kind of presaging the evolution of reality TV, which functionally took over the dramatic role of soap operas mm, yeah that kind of like weird human family melodrama where weird crazy shit happens that's on the kardashians mm. that's on like i mean it's a lot of the hills was scripted but the hills like it's that kind of thing that storytelling still exists but it took a very different form mm. and yeah i think something's actually kind of presaged that as as frustrating and shitty as the ending of that movie is mm. There's a lot of stuff in that movie I think is really interesting. So mm. anyway, that is, we've got mail. Uh, yeah. You almost said critically acclaimed. I almost you? said, I, I, you know, I thought for a second I was going to get away with it, but you'll <laughs> never get, let me get away with anything. Will you, will you? No, no, I'm going to call you out. You call me out on stuff all the time. It's fine. There's nothing. I'm That's gonna, why we're here. There's nothing I'm going to call you out on more. Mm. Then blam! <laughs> you called me out. Blam! Blam! Uh, thank you. We really should have blamed more in this podcast. I'm actually disappointed in us. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, mm. If you want to write into a future episode of Critically Acclaimed, the email address is letters at blam! <laughs> letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Yeah. Not, no blam. Dot blam. Dot blam. No blam. Just letters at criticallyacclaimed.net is the actual email address. Uh, you can also follow us at Critic Acclaim. I am at William DeBiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. Uh, we no, also have no, a... No blam. No blam. Uh, we also have a Patreon, patreon.com slash network, where we have exclusive shows about uh, Star Trek and Batman and Disney and the Academy Awards. We're doing a commentary track for Howard the Duck later this week. Um, we've got a lot of exclusive shows over there at the critically acclaimed Patreon, blam. And uh, we also um, That's think, all. You're, think you're cool. We think you're cool. Thank you for writing in. Yeah. We always like having these conversations. Okay, and uh, don't forget, if you like soap, mm. and I hope you do, because we, we need soap. Keeps us clean. Hmm. Uh, over at Etsy, you look for Salt Cat Soap, all one word. Uh, you'll find the soap store run by myself and M. Lampus da Silva. Uh, there's a lot of really cool soaps on there. There's a soap sale running on some of our uh, cooler bars until the end of the month. Uh, and then uh, first Saturday of every month, we debut uh, new designs. I have the first design that I designed uh, hitting the store mm. uh, next month. I'm very excited about it. Just uh, finished the first batch. They come out really nice. It smells good. Nice. Um, 
So uh, please uh, please stick around. Check all that out. Uh, and thank you, everybody, who has already purchased something from Salt Cat Soap. Uh, you can also follow Salt Cat Soap on Twitter and Instagram, at Salt Cat Soap, for pictures of future designs, pictures of Luca, um, <laughs> and maybe other uh, deals as well, uh, coupons and the like. Yeah, we'll yeah. Keep an eye out. Um, so thank you, everybody, for writing in. Sincerely yours, Bibs and Blam! Whitney. <laughs> Thank you.